Well, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, as we continue to focus on the birth of Jesus this Christmas season. This morning, we will focus in on Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 35. So find your way to Luke 1 and verse 26. Quick note, as you turn there, one of the authors that I used in researching this morning's message is named Rebecca McLaughlin, and I've decided to give each family in attendance this morning her short little book entitled, Is Christmas Unbelievable? I read it. It's very good. It's, uh, I really highly recommend it. I hope that you will find it as interesting as I did. It's a short little evangelistic book that she wrote. She's, uh, she's an academic that writes very intelligibly and very engagingly. I think you'll find it very helpful. But it's evangelistic. And so what I hope you do is that you'll receive this gift from us this morning after the service as you make your way out, but then that you'll re-gift it sometime between now and next Sunday or Monday. So take it home, read it this afternoon. That's the wonderful thing about this book. It's short. Most of us can read it in probably under 30 minutes, and then we get to go out and brag to all our friends that we read a whole book this weekend. So please take advantage of that. Also, we're saying one per family, but if you stick around and you see that there's still a pile of them after the service, feel, feel free to uh, take as many as you like, because I'd much rather sit in somebody's home in Billings where somebody might pick them up and read it than to have it sit around in our storage space till next Christmas. So pass those out. If we, get, if we hand them all out, we'll buy more and make them available to you in the future. Well... That's enough of that. Let's pray and we will get to work. Father, once again, we find ourselves utterly dependent upon you to open our eyes that we might see and behold the wondrous mystery of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Spirit, do your work in us as we consider your eternal words. Amen. This week I decided that the month of December is bipolar. <laughs> I'm not referring to the mental illness, that's serious. But I am referring to the fact that December seems to be marked by the polar, by polar opposites, extremes if you will. Take for example, December, man, the days are so short, dark. They get, it gets dark so early. This week, the sun will not show its face until nearly 8 a.m. And then it'll hide again starting at 4.30. For a guy like me, that's depressing. It sends everybody hiding in their houses. I wish we were out and about. Now imagine what life would have been like before the invention of the light bulb. It would have been so dark. Two-thirds of your day spent in darkness before the invention of the light bulb. But that's just it. The darkness of December means that we get to see those multicolored, cheery, fun Christmas lights. And we get those little jolts of happiness. December is bipolar, I'm telling you. Usually in Montana, not this year, this year uh, it feels like we live in Florida, not Montana, but usually in Montana, we get these beautiful snowfalls 
in the month of December and the snow covers the ground and we have a white Christmas and it makes everything look bright and beautiful and innocent and pure. But then you have to go out and shovel it. And then you have to drive on it. And then you have to watch it melt in all its ugliness. December is bipolar. Then there's the extreme emotions during the month of December. I mean, it's Christmas time. It's fun. And it's exhausting. There's the joy of buying the perfect gift for the person you love. And then there's the credit card bill that follows. There are the Christmas parties. And then there are the Christmas parties. December just might be making me bipolar. December, Christmas time, so much to love. But goodness gracious, it can be so hard. You know, I get a little sad every Christmas. I miss Christmas as a kid. Spending time at my grandma and grandpa's house. My aunts and my uncles, my cousins, they were all there. I miss, I miss the food. My, my great-grandmother was still alive, and she would make homemade cream puffs. I miss the singing. I miss tearing into the presence together with them. I miss the love of that room. I miss the joy. I miss the laughter, being together. Christmas, and this is why I say Christmas, can be kind of hard on me. Christmas has a special way of reminding me of just how far away I live from my family. I was reflecting this morning, I don't think my boys have ever spent a Christmas at their grandma's and grandpa's house. They've never been with their aunts and uncles or cousins on Christmas Day. And that's tough. And though spending Christmas with my family, it hasn't happened for a long time, Christmas is still great. It's still kind of that bipolar thing going on. It's great. But at the same time, and I'm going to say something that you older folks already know. That while Christmas is great, the older we get, the harder they can become. You see, Christmas, it has a way of slowing us down and reminding us that things... Things haven't quite turned out the way that we hoped. Perhaps Christmas reminds you that you haven't turned out quite the way you hoped. Christmas can remind us that life did not turn into the wonderful present we were hoping to unwrap when we were old. Christmas, it doesn't make me bipolar, it doesn't make you bipolar. But Christmas has a way of reminding us that we're human. And that our experience and the experiences around us, they're finite. We are finite. We are fires that burn hot and bright for a while and then we turn to coals and then we turn cold 
and the fire dies. Finite. And I think in a very real way, Christmas makes us long for something better. It tells us that we've been cheated. It makes us long for something eternal, a gift that will forever satisfy the infinite. You see, when I was a kid, Christmas, I think, did a pretty good job of filling the kid-size hole, the kid-size void in my heart. But the older I get, the more disappointment I face, the more people I lose, the void gets bigger, deeper, enormous. Now the void that we so often like to ignore, or try to fill with other things, the void is good. That is, if it drives you to one who is greater than the void, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, on Christmas, we remember, we celebrate, the Lord Jesus. And though we do what humans do, we try to fill the void that we feel, the emptiness that we feel with other things, with stuff, with food, with presents. But it is only the Lord Jesus Christ who was born that Christmas day that ultimately fills that void. And so this morning... And what we've been doing the last few weeks, Pastor Rick did a great job with it when talking about peace. And I did it last week. We're doing it again this week. We're going to take this bipolar Christmas season and we are going to be reminded of the steady, never-changing rock that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've turned to Luke chapter 1 to be reminded of those familiar words, but let's take a fresh look and be encouraged at the birth of Jesus Christ. We've got a handful of points this morning. They're not consequential. You do not need to write them down. They just help us follow along. Point number one is this, the angels visit. The angels visit. You'll remember these words. They're very familiar. Look at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. If you've been around the church at any length at all, you know that the first person to ever hear that Jesus is the Son of God is this low-income, obscure teenage girl. She lived in a no-name town. Not very many people have heard of it. In the backwaters of the Roman Empire. Her parents, 
man, they must not have been very creative because they gave her the most popular name given to women at that time, Mary. She was just another Mary. It seems like half the women in the New Testament are named Mary. But this ordinary teenage girl made an extraordinary claim. She claimed that an angel of God appeared to her and told her that she would give birth to the Son of God. Now, even back then, before the scientific mind had set in, her story was completely unbelievable. So how has it lasted for 2,000 years? Mary was no one special at this point. She was a believer. She apparently had some godly parents because she was schooled in her Old Testament. But she was just like any other teenage girl living in Israel at that time. Which means that getting a visit from an angel and receiving a messenger of God sounded more like a skit from Saturday Night Live than something you'd read in the Bible. It was not normal. In fact, her story sounds crazy. It was hard to believe back then just as it is hard to believe today. Which brings us to our second point, the angel's message. The angel's message, verse, verse 30 reads, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor. The word is Greek, or charis in the Greek. It means grace. You have found grace with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, he's going to be a king. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now listen, we read that and we think to ourselves, that's nuts. <laughs> this, of course, would have been flabbergasting news back then. Just as flabbergasting back then as it is today. But what we often lose sight of is the fact that for Mary, this would have been very troubling news. Mary, you're going to have a king. Now, ever since the Babylonian invasion of 597 BC into Israel, where they like rallied, or they killed a bunch of people and they chained them up and they drugged them off into Babylon and Syria. 600 years before the time of Christ, ever since then, these Jews have been kicked around like a soccer ball from empire to empire. Finally, 164 years before the birth of Christ, the Jews finally got enough mustard together that they rebelled against those who were occupying Israel and they went in and they conquered Jerusalem and they were able to rule Jerusalem once again and they were able to have temple worship in the temple and they were able to conquer some of the lands of Israel. That was a historic triumph. The Jews still celebrate it today. It's a holiday called Hanukkah. Then about 100 years later, just 63 years before the time of Christ, the Roman Empire came in and they conquered the Jews once again. 
The Jews were living under foreign occupiers at that point, another tyrannical government to come and oppress them. It was awful. The Jews hated it. And so they started trusting in and looking to and hoping that the dead prophets were right. You see, the dead prophets that had lived centuries before, they had promised that one day there would be a king. God would send a king, an all-powerful king. that would His kingdom would last forever, and he would rule over all the world. He would be the Messiah, the Christ. And as young Mary knew, that promised Messiah, the Christ, had not yet come. The church, it is hard for us to exaggerate just how dangerous it was for Mary to claim that she was going to give birth to the king of the Jews. You see, the Romans, they were brutal. And they utterly squelched any rebellious uprising the Jews could muster. When Mary, when she was about 10, 11, 12 years old, there were a group of Jews at the next town over from hers, and they revolted, and they took over a Roman armory. It's four miles down the street from Mary's house. How did the Romans, how did they respond to this little Jewish revolt? Well, they burned the city to the ground. They hung 2,000 Jews on crosses and crucified them. Left them hang there as a reminder. And then they took the rest of the town and sold them into slavery. That is an unimaginable nightmare. Now imagine being a 10, 11, 12-year-old kid knowing what had just happened up the street. Church, four miles away is nothing. Shields is four miles away. When the wind blew a certain way, Mary and her family could have smelled the death. Undoubtedly, the people from Nazareth could look up and see the city four miles away burning to the ground. You see, little teenage Mary, she knew that rebelling against Rome wasn't just futile. It was suicidal. So why in the world would teenage Mary, who experienced all of this in her lifetime, her short little lifetime, why would she go around telling people that she had the king of the Jews growing in her belly? That was suicide. Unless, of course, something extraordinary happened to Mary. Unless she saw, I don't know, something like an angel. Unless maybe she got pregnant, but she knows that she had never been with a man. And perhaps she received a message from God saying she would give birth 
to his son. Unbelievable. Which leads us to Mary's question. This is our third point this morning. Verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now I'm sure that Mary had all kinds of questions rolling around in her brain, but the Bible tells us that she asked just one. How? How will this be? We lose sight that she's a young, pure, untouched kid. And she now undoubtedly knew her birds and her bees because she's about to get married. But nonetheless, she's terrified. What's going to happen to me? Who's going to do this? I'm betrothed to Joseph. I'm going to marry Joseph. I, I love Joseph. What are my parents going to say? This is going to ruin everything. My life. My marriage. If Rome doesn't kill me, my parents certainly will. Which brings us to our fourth point. The angel's answer. The angel's answer, verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, to be born, will be called Holy, the Son of God. What's that mean? What's it mean that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, overshadow you? I don't think anybody knows exactly what that means. But the angel makes it clear that the conception will be the result of a creative act of God rather than a night of romance. But there it is. Mary, visited by an angel, told and given a message that she would bear God's son the king of the world. Which brings us to point number five. We're out of verses here, so I have to come up with something else, all right? So please indulge me for a moment. Point number five, two more Marys and two more angels. For this point, we're going to need to fast forward from the first chapter of Luke to the last chapter of Luke. So turn over to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, and we'll start in verse 1. If you've been in the church, you know that by the time Luke 24 rolls around, Mary has long since given birth to Jesus. In fact, he's now a grown man that has just, he's just been killed by the Romans with the charge of being king of the Jews. Luke 24 verse 1 reads, but on the first day of the week, just to get you caught up, Jesus had just been crucified on Friday. This is Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, and the they there is Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joanna and some other women. So the Marys, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. 
while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Those are angels. Verse 5. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He, that's Jesus, is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself, he told you that he must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told them, who told these things to the apostles, verse 11. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Another translation puts it like this, but the women's story sounded like nonsense, so the men didn't believe it. The reason I had us turn to the second Mary's is like the first Mary's story, their story, it all sounded like an idle tale, like a bunch of hogwash at first. Now Mary Magdalene, she was close to Jesus. That's why she went to the tomb with the spices with the other ladies to finish preparing his body for burial. And like the first Mary, Jesus' mom, Mary Magdalene is now claiming that she had a chat with angels and now she has an important message to share. You see, the first Mary announced that Jesus was miraculously born from her womb. The second Mary announces that Jesus was miraculously reborn from the tomb. Hard to believe. At least the first 11 disciples, the apostles, seem to think so. That kind of stuff doesn't happen in real life. Verse 12 tells us, though, that Peter rose in his excitement. He, he gets up and he runs to the tomb. And stooping, he looks in and he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what happened, marveling at the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Hard to believe. But not if you've been so fortunate as to get a life-changing glimpse at the resurrected Jesus. So how have these uh, two stories, these two claims by the two Marys, how have they weathered over time? You see, the first Mary's claim that Jesus is the everlasting king of the world, it doesn't sound so crazy today when you consider 
that billions of people claim that Jesus is their king. Billions. When the second Mary, Mary Magdalene, first made her claim, you know, there were just at best, um, at most a few hundred disheveled, disheartened followers of Jesus. As a matter of fact, when, when we read later in Luke and the end of the other gospels, they were so disheartened, they were starting to go home. Like the guys on the Emmaus Road, they're disheartened. They're like, man, we were really hoping this guy was the Messiah. Just a few disheartened, disheveled disciples. Today, the followers of Jesus Christ represent the largest global religion in the world. 31% of humans say that Jesus is their king. That's 2.5 billion people. And that's only counting the people who are alive and breathing today. That's not counting the billions of people who are Christ followers the past 2,000 years. Now, according to secular experts, while Christianity continues to grow and expand across the globe, the number of people who are Atheist, agnostic, or do not religiously affiliate continue to decline. As if all these people face the void and they realize there must be something else. The Pew Research Center estimates that the number of atheists, agnostics, and non-religious, that they will shrink by 156 million people by the times the kids in children's church are as old as I am. 156 million people, that's almost half the population of the United States. Here's a fun fact for you. Even though communist China is currently considered the global center of atheism, there will soon be more Christians in China than there are the United States. Fen Gang Yang, and yes, I did pronounce that right, and I'm not going to say it twice. <laughs> Nationally, he, he was born in China. He is the founding director of the Center of Religion in Chinese Society at Purdue University. His research leads him to believe that China, the global center of atheism, will be a majority Christian country by the year 260, 2060. That's hard to believe. But then again, since the beginning, Jesus has been in the business of hard to believe. Hey, Mary, you're going to give birth to a king, and he's going to rule the world forever. When you think about the billions of people who claim Jesus is king, suddenly the story behind Christmas isn't as far-fetched and hard to believe. Jesus is king. 
and he rules the world. For our last point this morning, I simply want to ask the question, why? Why would God become a man? Well, 1 Timothy 1.7 says it about as clear as any passage. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I'm going to tell you, the fact that he came to save sinners means that we all qualify. The common experience of the human life is that none of us reach the bar all the time that we even set for ourselves, let alone the bar of a perfect, holy God. And according to justice, let me just talk a minute about ethics. It's very interesting because what, what atheists, what ethics professors, what they like to do now is they like to sit back critically and judge Christians for the way that we have fallen by the way that we have been hypocrites and have fallen short of our own standards. And they, and they rightly judge us, right? Like the history of the church is not pretty, but that should come as no surprise. Have you read the Bible? Have you heard last week's sermon? We're all a bunch of people who fall drastically short but what these ethics professors, what the ethics experts like to do is they like to sit back and judge the church for the way that we have fallen short. Church, the standard of ethic by which they judge us did not exist before Christ. Read the history books. The fact that people were created equal was laughable during the time of Rome and the Roman Empire. Equal rights? that women were equal to men? Are you kidding me, that children, that they deserved the life of pursuing happiness? That comes from Christianity, from the truth, the word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. We abide by these rules across the globe today because Jesus is king. His word rules. Ironically, it's even come to rule and be the standard by which unbelievers judge believers. Christ Jesus, he came into the world to save sinners. We all qualify. And how does he save us? By becoming sin for us. On that cross in which he died, where the, where the charge of being the king of the Jews was written in every well-known spoken language. When it was nailed to the cross above him while he died on that cross, Colossians 2 tells us that every one of our sins, that is if we trust in him, was nailed to that cross in his body so that he could die and pay the penalty for those sins. In full which means every sin we've ever committed, past, present, and future, is paid for in full, and we now stand justified, completely innocent before a holy judge. But not only has he paid our sin in full, he has also credited to our account his perfect righteousness, that we might know the joys and the treasures that he has earned with his perfect life, and have that inheritance for all of eternity. Why? Why would God become a man? To save sinners. So that we could spend Christmas together 
forever. God did not send his own son into the world to condemn the world, John 3, 17, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Friends, when Mary met the angel, that no-name girl in the middle of nowhere, when she came forth with her message about her son, it was true. And if you believe her message, then it doesn't matter how big the void in your heart gets. Jesus will fill it. The infinite can save the finite. And he can cause the flame of your life to burn forever. So let us trust in Christ, the King of the world. Let's pray. Oh God, may every one of us stop the rebellion may we submit and surrender to King Jesus. Father, I've been, as you know, following your son for decades, but there are still, there are still hidden recesses of my heart that I refuse to surrender. How foolish. Thank you for your grace. I surrender to King Jesus. Lord, whether you've been a believer for decades like me, or Lord, whether you've never believed these people, folks, maybe somebody here has never believed in you ever. Lord, help us to surrender to King Jesus. This thing that seems so unbelievable is actually believable. Jesus is king. The world proves it. Your word proves it. The gospel proves it. Oh, that we would surrender. In Christ's name, amen.